As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today is a man who I don't know if he's happy or sad, but I do know that he watched some League One football this weekend. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. How are you? Hello, Tate. To quote Casey Musgrove, I'm happy and sad at the same time. There it How's is. That sound for you? That's uh, what I yeah, figured it was going to be. I did indeed watch some League One football at the weekend. Uh, Ace of Wimbledon played a team whose name shall never be spoken on this podcast and whose name is never spoken on Ace of Wimbledon's Twitter feed, which is nice to know. <laughs> uh, big, 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 big event happening tomorrow as we record Tuesday, Taylor. I'm sure you know, you're very aware. Um, global news is going to be made tomorrow as Ace of Wimbledon play their first game back at Plough Lane. Huge one. That's the big and one. you know what? It's such a huge event that Sky... And ESPN are not putting it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is the biggest event that's happening tomorrow. Uh, yeah, let's let's not go, uh, send either one of ourselves into sheer panic about tomorrow. Let's instead focus on uh, Wimbledon for a moment. Were you okay with that result, given that it was away from home, but against a team that are uh, fairly lower than you all on the table? Yes, I'm happy with that result because they tend to get the better of us in the league. The team we're talking about is the Milton Keynes Dons, by the way, for those not I was going to follow your with, lead. I was going to not mention the name. <laughs> I, I'll say it for the purposes of this recording, again, right. for the, to not confuse the listener too much. Uh, very much the rivals of Wimbledon, who uh, you can look into that story as to why. Um, but yeah, we tend to not do super well against them in the league. So I'll take a point against them and uh, have them not beat us any day of the week. Is that the game that you were watching like most intently this weekend? Did you have the most emotional connection to it? Obviously, but was that the one that kind of like kept you glued to the screen the whole time? Do you know, honestly, I have the least emotional connection really? to that game. Uh, I know a lot of people like they wouldn't, you know, I follow is the thing that you use to um, to watch the games in the UK and here as well. Because uh, if, if it's an away game and you buy the game, the money goes to the home club so a lot of people wouldn't even buy at the feed uh-huh. um and I, I i think getting engaged in that game recognizes that team as a legit entity which they're not so i, I try not to get too involved in it if i'm honest i'm rising no. above it 
All right. Well, then let's let's get you involved in another game, one that I had a slightly more emotional connection to. It would be Manchester <laughs> United's 1-0 loss at home to Arsenal. And I want to start not with United, but with Arsenal, because I think we've got to give them some credit for what is a, a very... A good result that then when you look at it within the context of maybe struggling to create some chances, there are questions Taylor, about Arteta. Taylor, can, mm-hmm. can I stop you there? Why are we starting with like a, a game which was two teams in the bottom half of the Premier League? Can't we start with a bigger <laughs> a bigger event than this? Which which game would you rather start with? <laughs> I don't know who we're Everton playing. Boom, boom. Anyway, let's get going. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. It's a, it's a strange time for both of these teams, though I would say the result for Arsenal, to me... Uh, speaks volumes to them having a plan and continuing to execute. I think some of the criticisms that have been directed Manchester United's way are fair. Some of them, I think, are unfair. But I think a lot of the praise going to Arsenal is correct, even if Roy Keane doesn't agree. Uh, but I thought their pressing was excellent. I thought their midfield pairing was solid. I thought Mikel Arteta sort of rolled the dice in a couple of different places and for the most mm-hmm. part got all of those gambles correct. So I thought this was just a, a very strong performance from Arsenal, mostly from start to finish. I think you're absolutely right. Not so long ago on this very show, Taylor Rockwell, I accused Arsenal of having a soft belly Mm -hmm. and in particularly saying that they had nothing to offer in their midfield. And I think it was a very different story in this game in particular. And I think obviously there's been a lot of praise for Thomas Partey, uh, who is uh, who's doing an excellent, excellent job. Uh, Very serious player in the middle. There's there's a a great quote I saw. I think I saw on Twitter. Apologies to the author of it. He's the opposite of a highlights player. He's a details player. And the best Arsenal have had in the position for 15 years. It's hard to disagree with that. But that pairing of him and El Nenny, I thought, worked really well. Really well protecting the back line. Really well stopping any kind of midfield creativity on Manchester United's part. And just, if you look at that, Partey and El Nenny and what they did in this game and what Xhaka and Ceballos might have done in previous games, big, big upgrade, right? Absolutely, because I think this Arsenal team were set up to basically limit Manchester United doing what they want to do, which is a rapid build-up out of the back. You catch the team on the break. You sort of find that one area of vulnerability. You exploit it. You get a goal on the counter, and now the other team has to get stretched. Then it opens up more chances. That's kind of my explanation for what happened against RB Leipzig. And I think Mm. Arsenal did a really good job of disrupting that build-up high up the field, routinely slowing it down, Fred having to drop between the two center backs, a lot of slow lateral passing. That I think exactly is what Arsenal wanted. And then when Manchester United would get into Arsenal's half, I, I saw Arsenal dropping in, keeping their shape. Elneny and Partey not getting really pulled out. Uh, the times that they would go forward to help with the press, they did a really nice job of dropping back in when the situation required. And I just thought that sort of back and forth, that ebb and flow of how they approached their midfield positioning really limited United chances. Because they do get one or two decent counterattacking opportunities. But aside from that, I think Arsenal really defensively shut them down pretty effectively and consistently yeah and this is this is not something that hasn't been said before but it seemed like one of these teams came with a plan for this game yeah uh, it, it was Arsenal obviously being very compact very well disciplined as you say and coming out to get a result and staying the course for the full 90 which is important as well and Manchester United they didn't they just let's try the same old thing we try every week and you know once again this is not nothing new I'm not breaking any any uh insight here but 
this is a Manchester United team that likes to play, you know, on the counter and trying to get in behind teams that like to attack against them and find that space. And when they found in this game and in the Chelsea game, when they come up against an organised team with an organised defence, they can't quite do it. If they come up against a PSG who are, you know, are basically a similar setup to Manchester United in many ways, or a Leipzig, kind of similar in, in, in sort of maybe in their, in their attacking repose, then... They, they they can handle that, but they don't change, they don't adapt, and they don't try, they don't have maybe have the tools, uh, the necessary tools to break down a team which defends very well like Arsenal did in this instance. Yeah, I want to talk about those tools or the lack thereof, the distinct lack thereof, I would say. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about what Arsenal did to, I think, grow mm. into this game. Because the commentators... From around minute 15 or so, we're kind of had the narrative going of Arsenal are, are having the better chances. They're playing the better football. Manchester United are really struggling to create. In that time period, I wasn't as in line with that level of thinking. I think by the end of the first half, I certainly was. And I think one big part in sort of the momentum fully changing in my mind at least was the involvement of uh, Hector Bellerin that in mm. the first like what I try to do with games uh, when I push them is to not look at the starting lineups not look at the formations but try to figure them out as the game goes on and I kept Fun. not knowing who Arsenal's right wing back was because they come out in sort of a 3-4-3 three, three. Um, and for the first 16 minutes or so I wasn't entirely sure because they do not play down the right hand side the first time they they do when they get both wingbacks forward is when uh, Bayern fires in that cross that Aubameyang just misses. And three different times in the first half, the, the three times Bayern gets involved in the attack, Arsenal create uh, and create decent chances. And, and that is when they look most effective. And I think as that first half went on, Arsenal started to commit their wingbacks further and further up the field more readily. And I think they kind of applied that press a little bit more. You would have expected them to have a man disadvantage, Manchester United in a 4-3-3. Arsenal with that two-man midfield, but with Fred dropping between the two center backs and Arsenal having a front three, it effectively becomes like 7v7 high up the pitch. And I think you kind of cancel out a lot of what Manchester United were doing. But I thought the adjustment of having uh, Bayern get more involved in the attack and then keeping numbers further up the field, I thought that was Arteta sort of reading the game and adjusting accordingly. To your point, I don't think we really saw Ole Gunnar Solskjaer able or capable of doing the same. Yeah, I think you're quite right there, and you're right to pick out uh, Bailey. And I'd say Saka as well had a pretty good game yeah. out, out wide as well. Um, Saka getting into the box, and I think he had a decent headed chance at one point. And and you're right to pick I, out. I would the, say the chance was decent. I don't think his finish was decent, but yes, you're right that <laughs> think, yeah, he yeah. was definitely involved. A decent chance was created, uh, but Bailey, <laughs> I think he he put in the cross for when Lacazette had that unfortunate air mm-hmm. shot as well. That was one of the three I think you mentioned there. And yeah, he, he was he was given plenty of space to roam, as was Saka, uh, due to the kind of system that Manchester United were using, right? How do you mean? Well, just in fact that they... they uh, this is something that was kind of explained um, in the in the NBC coverage, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really good uh, once again this week with, with Robbie Elsa yeah, breaking agreed. down. The fact that Manchester United had a midfield diamond yeah. and it was um, so Pogba and McTominay coming in uh, and to, to deal with uh, the, the, the threat through the middle, which left a lot of space on the on the flanks for Bellerin and Saka to sort of <laughs> pile through yep. an attack. And, you know, Aaron Wan-Bissaka didn't have an amazing game. Luke Shaw didn't have an amazing game. So there was a lot of play for Arsenal on those wide, uh, wide positions. And Manchester United were very narrow. They didn't have a lot of width, maybe because of that diamond. And mm-hmm. um, this, this is something that sort of Robbie L explained probably much more eloquently than I did just then. But uh, a point which uh, we sort of made off air, Taylor, is that NBC's coverage was 
really good. Yeah. It was really detailed for this game. It was one of the better halftime analyses that they've done, I would say. And uh, they, they were they weren't speaking down to a, to any viewer in this one. They were maybe assuming a bit more knowledge and a bit more practical knowledge, which they can do when they're eight or nine years into this uh, uh, NBC coverage, perhaps. But very impressive stuff from them. But getting yeah. back on track, Manchester United a bit narrow. That midfield diamond not really working for them, right? I would agree. Uh, I, and I think it's probably because it works so well against Leipzig. Again, I think because Leipzig allowed themselves to get stretched and then punished on the counter, and that opens up more chances. Arsenal did not do that, so I think already that's going to be a problem. But then, even the way United set up to defend, when Arsenal tried to build out of the back, you had Greenwood and Rashford like higher than the rest of the team, but usually Bruno Fernandes would try to join them to block off options through the middle. But then, with the rest of the midfield diamond sort of dropping in, and those fullbacks dropping in as well. Yeah, there's tons of space out wide. Bruno, for his part, having to do an incredible amount of running. I really paid attention to his off-the-ball work, specifically his off-the-ball defensive work. And that mm-hmm. is the reason I think a lot of Manchester United fans were confused why he was substituted in the second half and not, say, Paul Pogba. I think it's because of the amount of work he has to do, which is a credit to him, but also a problem for Manchester United because he was doing all that running because there's space in behind, but there's gaps out wide. And if Rashford goes to try to fill in there, Bruno has to go to support him. But then if there's a big switch, now he has to cover that distance to get across. And I do think... That lack of width was a massive issue and why Arsenal started to get those numbers committed further and further forward. If you don't have mm-hmm. wingers to ping or to pin those fullbacks back or those wingbacks back, then of course Bayern's going to keep getting involved. Of course Saka's going to keep getting involved. And that's where I think coming out of halftime, like I remember the, uh, the halftime analysis also focusing on like, what are the changes they're going to make? What do Manchester United to do? And I think Rebecca Lowe ended it with like, well, we do think there will be some changes. He's got Matic and uh, Donny van de Beek warming up at halftime. And yeah. for a minute, me as a Manchester United fan thought like, okay, he's going to make some changes. That's exciting. And then you think about what those changes are. And it's a really good insight into where their recruitment has let them down that they were desperately needing more attacking options, more wide attacking options specifically, and they bring on two central midfielders eventually and then Edson Cavani, Mm -hmm. who I wouldn't say is the most mobile of people anymore either. And you really see where they needed those wide attackers, where Jadon Sancho made a lot of sense, where Jack Grealish could have made a lot of sense, where they could have brought in more options to give them more variety to that attack. And to some extent, I do think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't adjust as quickly. I think he holds off making substitutions until a little bit too late. That's just my mm. personal my personal feeling. But I also think he doesn't really have the options he needs and the depth he needs to be able to change up the game in a structural way, the way I think other managers have a bit more flexibility. So I think this wasn't a great game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, certainly, but I also think this was a very bad game for the Man United board and the decision makers when it comes to the transfers they have made. Yeah, I think you're quite right. And uh, I've mentioned before on this show that Manchester United are the biggest underachievers in soccer. Mm -hmm. And it's laughable that they have so much money, they have so many resources, and they can be in this situation where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't really have the weapons he needs uh, to push on in the second half here. And as you say, the three substitutions that were made in the second half, none of them were particularly effective. Nope. Edison Cavani, I can barely remember him doing anything in this game. Uh, he, he has moments where you see his, like, oh, he is very technically good. You see what he would bring if he had more options around him. But when he doesn't, he ends up having to do a lot of running. Yeah. So uh, so as bad as Manchester United are organization-wise, can yeah. I ask you a question as a fan here? Sure. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, mm-hmm. is he bad? And let me phrase it this way. Would any other team in the Premier League, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was available as a manager mm-hmm. right now, 
Would any other team in the Premier League think we'd like to have him as our manager? So I'm, I'm going to kind of like split the difference here, but I will answer the second part first, which is to say, no, probably not. I don't think so, because I think he got the job originally because of the connection to Manchester United. I think he's mm-hmm. brought in to be an emotional leader and to sort of inspire past performances or based on past performances. And I think he did do that enough to get that full time gig. So, no, I don't think he he is like like a manager that anybody would be clamoring for. I also just don't think this is entirely his fault because I do think you can see things they're trying to do. He wants uh, Lindelof and Maguire to be a little bit more adventurous on the ball. I think you can see that with Scott McTominay as well, that in the second half, McTominay starts to carry the ball forward, and that feels like a specific instruction he's given. So I mm. think there are little things he wants them to do. I think you can see the way that he wants them to play. I think it's defensive and on the counter but and so like i don't think he's a bad manager but i don't think he is necessarily one that has covered himself in glory or would or anybody would come calling for if manchester united sacked him yeah. i just think there are so many problems in that team uh both in terms of a lack of talent and then some of the talent they do have uh looking directly at the direction of paul pogba uh mm-hmm. and i think that is also a big part of it is i think there's just so many question marks about that team that if you have fewer broad question marks, I think it helps the manager look a little bit more stable than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer certainly does right now. I can appreciate that, Taylor, and I can appreciate what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did in this game, and he did try to switch things up in the second half, moving Pogba over to the left and making the substitutions that he did. But there's just there's just questions about, you know, going mm. into this game from minute zero, there, there was things wrong with this team, and even, even the selection. Why, why is Lindelof starting in this game when, you know, Tuan Zebi's proved himself mm-hmm. not so long ago of being pretty good. Why is Pogba getting a start? Why is Donny van der Beek not getting a chance yeah. when uh, Pogba has been you know, set up as this super sub, uh, which may, may, maybe he's not super happy with that uh, arrangement, yeah. but what has he done to earn that start, I would say? And uh, there's, there's just lots of questions uh, for, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I would say. More, mm-hmm. more questions than answers. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think that is the... Again, the the joke I was making earlier about Roy Keane not believing in like progress. There's that clip doing the rounds of Tim Cahill arguing that Mikel Arteta is figuring things out and you can see the structure coming into form. And the important thing when they lose is that they know why they lost. Mm. For Manchester United, I think you can know why they lost if you list 15 different reasons. But it wasn't like Paul Pogba is going to get the blame. For conceding that penalty, for for being a little bit sloppy in possession, for conceding uh, sort of too many opportunities for Arsenal. But I think like that is an issue and he is a problem. Uh, I, I don't think he is the biggest problem, but I think he is a problem. But I think you don't see this team evolving. You don't see them like, okay, this was a problem and now they've solved that problem. We know what they're going to do here. Now we can focus on this next thing. It feels, and this is the thing, again, the uh, the NBC Sports uh, crew we're talking about is that for every step forward, it feels like there's a step back. Every time we say, have they turned the corner? It tends to go backwards. It, it feels like uh, the SNL joke from this past weekend of like, we've turned the corner so many times on COVID that we're back where we were in March. Like, it feels that way with Manchester United. They've turned the co- corner so many times. We're sort of back to where they were a couple months ago. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, though, that I think we don't see questions being answered. I think the list of questions we have about Manchester United continuing to grow. I do want to like focus in on Paul Pogba one more time because... The penalty conceded, I think it tends to get blamed on, oh, he's, it's a lack of focus, it's a lack of effort, he just doesn't know what he's doing, whatever. I think that's, that's unfair, because he's a world-class footballer. I think it's also a little bit 
oversimplifying, but I think he's put into a position where now he's playing wide left in the second half, but he still has to drop in and do that defensive job. And one thing I would say about Paul Pogba is that he's not a defensive player. He said so himself in the post-match interview that that's like a thing he's still trying to figure out and still trying to learn. He admitted he was tired when this sequence occurs, but he stops tracking the runner. He's not paying attention to where uh, Bayron is at this point and is instead so focused on that ball. And if people haven't played soccer before, it's like it's a thing that I think is important that you can, if you are tired and you're just trying to make sure that you're not at fault, you're not making any silly mistakes, if you start to focus in on that ball a little bit, you stop paying attention to that runner. And in that moment when the ball's played in, for Bay you're in, I think Pogba just thinks like, oh, I've got this, no problem. I'm going to cut in and poke that ball away. And you can see him sort of fixate on the ball for a second. And he goes for it. I think if he goes for it 100%, I think there is maybe a chance that he ends up just poking this ball away. He does what he wanted. But as he makes that decision, I think he also spots like, oh, no, I've let this runner get in. And now he's 50% going for the ball, 50% worried about the man. And at that point, your sort of loyalties are split. You're not sure which one you're going to go for 100%. And so you don't really do either. And I think that's that sort of mental switch, that fatigue or that positional like lack of familiarity, whatever you want to go with, it ends up being a problem. And that's the type of thing that knowing Paul Pogba did this earlier in the season, you might have expected Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to say, all right, I really want you to work on this, or we're not going to put you in that position, or somebody needs to cover for Paul here. And that that doesn't happen. Again, it feels like you're sort of trying some things, but not understanding the rhyme or reason behind them. So fundamentally, it's Pogba not being deployed in the correct way by his manager. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I think it, it continues to be that he doesn't really know how to utilize him to get the best out of him. It's honestly a conversation I think we can have about Ronald Koeman and Lionel Messi a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I think the Messi one is more of a confusing thing because of everything else going on at Barcelona, whereas the Pogba thing is more confusing because it feels like a consistent issue with Paul Pogba since his return to Manchester United is where does he fit the best and why can't a manager seem to get the best out of him and I think it's because there's a misunderstanding of what his talents are but I also think there's many other things for Man United to worry about fewer things certainly for Arsenal to worry about uh, they do look like a, the stronger of the two teams obviously getting the win but just seem like a team that have kind of bought into what Arteta is asking there seems to be a lot of camaraderie and chemistry within that team the uh, El Neni Partey partnership is Certainly not what I expected Arsenal's midfield to be built around at the beginning of the season, but you understand why it is now. So I think very positive signs from Mikel Arteta and Arsenal. One other thing I say about Partey, by the way, is I'm sort of established that he's not like a YouTube highlights kind of guy. He's very functional. But also his movement and the way he kicks Mm -hmm. the ball. You know how if you go to the aquarium and you see a shark and the way it kind of glides through the water, Mm -hmm. it's very elegant and it's very unique compared to other fish. That's Thomas Partey to me. <laughs> you know how so, I, I, that, I like maybe that I make that sound far too poetic, but in terms of like how Thiago looks, you know, gorgeous when he strikes yeah. the ball. Partey's got a, a bit of that about him as well, hasn't he? Just elegant. He does, but there's also that like uh, that awareness that at any given moment he can he he will attack without warning. And uh, I, I'm trying to find a way to make a shark not like a predatory. Like Thomas Partey is not going to foul you and destroy you, but he is going to win the ball off you and sort of embarrass you at the same time, which isn't really a, a thing a shark does. But I see where you're going with the like he looks well, so graceful, but you know there's an element of danger. Put it that way. Manchester City were the shark team. Now it's Arsenal, <laughs> baby. Uh, I'll, I'll just say one more sh- uh, short thing about Pogba mm-hmm. as well. In that I, I, I thought I, 
to, to his credit, uh, there was humility in that post-match interview yeah. where he sort of explained um, the situation with giving away the penalty. To, uh, and to be fair, he was in a, a relatively unfamiliar position out there uh, on the left. And also, you know, he, will, he, he sort of explained the penalty situation, whereas a few weeks ago, when he gave away the penalty against Tottenham for the foul on Ben Davies, I think it was, smiling afterwards. Yeah. Smiling afterwards, which I, which I thought was absolutely disgraceful. So, if anything... The discipline has improved in his penalty giveaways. All right. And and, and his uh, thoughtfulness when he gives those penalties away also improved. So yeah. that is, I guess, a positive for Manchester United. As I said, a significantly more positives for Arsenal, mm-hmm. uh, who I would say did the better job, at least in this game, when it comes to their summer recruitment. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. If Manchester United need to recruit some more uh, some more people to make their team a little bit better, then maybe they could use today's sponsor, LinkedIn. Ryan, I know you've got some familiarity with LinkedIn, uh, but they would like to remind everybody that colorful days of fall are now upon us. Are your small businesses' needs evolving? Despite the current uncertainty, having the right people on your team is like feeling the warmth of being wrapped in a blanket. Not like to be serious. From what I will say, I totally agree with that because uh, with with Daryl's. Uh, I would say sudden passing. Uh, it was it was a bit of a surprise to myself and I think to his wife as well. I'm making this very heavy, but it is the truth that like knowing that I have Ryan to help me do this show, knowing that I have Joe Lowry to help me keep the show going, it has been a very happy thing and a very I don't know calming thing. So I get the point here that if you need the right people around you to keep things going, uh, LinkedIn can certainly help with that, and it will bring a sense of comfort. Uh, it certainly will, Taylor. LinkedIn jobs. Uh, it's a LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 706 million members worldwide, myself included. That's <laughs> right. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm a fancy person. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Uh, manage. You can post jobs, uh, mm-hmm. manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar, the very familiar LinkedIn.com. If you're a fancy business person like myself, you'll know it very well. And the functions are streamlined into one simple screen. And I've said this before, Taylor, one thing i do enjoy about linkedin jobs uh, you can go and check it out at linkedin.com slash jobs is that if you are looking for a job it tailors uh, all of the jobs to you and your profile so it's very easy to find stuff that suits you which makes it a good if you are posting a job see yeah. Yeah, there we go. Made that very Italian. I'm sorry. (laughs) I like it. Uh, You can also identify strong candidates with their uh, rating system to help quickly get your job in front of more qualified candidates. So if you're Manchester United and you want a midfielder who won't concede penalties, I'm going to assume there's some sort of rating system in place to make sure that you won't get that. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first fifty dollars off. Just visit LinkedIn.com/tss. Again, that's LinkedIn.com/tss to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode of The Total. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Soccer Show, thank you to Viore for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Viore is a new perspective, or they're offering a new perspective on performance apparel. It's perfect if you are sick and tired of traditional old workout gear. We saw Bruzy and Munch and Gladbach roll out the all-black kits that we'll talk oh. about later, or we can talk about now because they looked lovely. They looked so good. It wasn't just the all-black. It was everything else about them that looked so mm. good. But it's a good exemplifier of you look good, you feel good, you play good, you beat RB Leipzig. And I think that's <laughs> something that Viore would be okay with. The idea that if you sort of have the clothing and it makes you feel like you are looking good and feeling good, then you're probably going to have a good workout. You're going to feel like that exercise is is doing a better job for you. I don't know about you, Taylor. Maybe you're slightly more hipster than me. You more have more hipster credentials than me. But I'm the kind of guy in every day I like to go out generally wearing athletic wear. Mm. Uh, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where if I'm wearing long pants, I'm disappointed. So I'm wearing the short sort of gym shorts a lot of my spare time. Uh, and that's where Viore comes in. It's got stuff that's perfect for the workout mm-hmm. activities, perfect for everyday life, perfect for that little trip to Trader Joe's for your uh, coconut or your, your oatly milk, Taylor. Is that what you get, your hipster? <laughs> my oat milk? Oatly? Is that the one? <laughs> the oat milk? Oh, we've tried a few different ones, and I can comfortably say that uh, uh, milk is is the one for me. <laughs> 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 Once you realize that like oat milk isn't trying to be milk, if they just called it like oak, oat milk like beverage, I don't know. That's probably not going to do the uh, the marketing team justice. But yeah, no, I'll go with normal milk, and I'll go with. I'm with you though that like comfortable clothes um, that maybe don't like like you want to go with the comfortable clothes, especially in this time period. But simultaneously, like walking the dogs with my big beard, if I'm just wearing like clothes that have paint stains on them and something like that with the big beard, I think people start to give me some some head tilts, some wary glances. Whereas, mm. yeah, if you're wearing Viore, it's designed to be comfortable. It's designed for you to work out in, but it's also designed to look very nice, to look like you're not wearing workout clothing even when you are. So I think that does tick a couple different boxes for us. And I think that's what we're both uh, looking for. Viore means mountain, by mm. the way, Taylor. Who knows in what languages? Maybe Finnish. Some I looked it up. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering that too. Well, I don't want to finish talking about Viore because I've got That's more fair. to say, frankly, such as their men's core short. Did you know it's the most comfortable lined athletic short that they make? It's a one short for every sport and every trip to Trader Joe's for your fancy milk. <laughs> Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at vioreclothing.com slash T-S-S. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash T-S-S. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75, and you'll get free returns. So go to vioreclothing.com slash T-S-S and discover the versatility of Viore Clothing. Thank you very much to Viore for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to Ryan Bailey for talking about his shopping habits and his clothing <laughs> habits while shopping. Uh, let's stay in the Premier League, Ryan. Let's talk Spurs 2-1 win over Brighton. I'd love to do that. Um, this one was marginally overshadowed. Well, I suppose the headline from a non-technical and officiating uh, uh, perspective was Gary Bale, his first goal at Tottenham in, what, seven years or so. Uh, Gary Taking Bale. advantage of, uh, of uh, Brighton's lapse in defending mm-hmm. to let him have a completely free header to win this one. But I suppose the headline here, Taylor, is going to be some controversy around that video assistant referee, baby. <laughs> yeah. I think I was watching Match of the Day and I think Peter Crouch summed it up as, it's nice to see the referee go and have a look at the monitor and then get the decision wrong (laughs) and that is 
I think you you could make an argument for a couple of these one way or the other, but I think the ones you'd be pointing to would be the Harry Kane penalty, yep. uh, Mac Doherty not conceding a penalty, even though it seemed like he had for a foul on or not foul on Trossard, and then the uh, the foul on Heuberg that led to Brighton's equalizer that, again, yeah. was not given. So let's go through those chronologically. Sure. We'll start with the Harry Kane penalty, which uh, this was a, a Adam Lallana allegedly fouling Harry Kane on the edge of the box, jumping for a header. Now, I, I, uh, shortly before this incident occurred, Taylor, I went and made a cup of tea, which is not that far away from my TV screen, but momentarily uh, lapsing concentration to uh, do my British thing because I can't go that long without cups of tea. It's mm-hmm. kind of how I operate. Come back to the screen and see the replay, and I see that a foul has been given, and I see Harry Kane sort of ducking out of the challenge and letting Adam Lallana fall quite mm-hmm. hard onto the ground. I presume that a foul had been given against Harry Kane. That was it, not the case. It, it was not, but you are not alone in that one. I think several other analysts thought that that could have been given as a foul uh, by Harry Kane on Adam Lallana yeah. for essentially in a different scenario that's tabletopping, right? It's, it's undercutting, mm. it's going underneath to kind of cut out the legs, make them fall, and yeah, hit the ground pretty hard. So Pat Harry Kane was basically, uh, you know, given a penalty for ducking out of a headed challenge, mm-hmm. essentially, and endangering an opponent. I so would... I, I didn't like this one very much. I'm happy to concede that it was a penalty because it was on the line of the penalty box. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I just I could have seen that honestly given uh, as a, to, to Brian mm-hmm. to, to going the other way because that just seemed to me like. Well, you know, is... if, if, if a player is taken down by a goalkeeper and he's just about to slot the ball in the goal, that's a, a, fair, a fair compensation for that is a penalty. Mm-hmm. Is a fair compensation for that incident on the edge of the box when there are other players between the players in question and the goal, is that fair compensation a 12-yard spot kick for what happened there? I don't think so. I mean, if, if, it's, if it happens on or inside the box and it's a foul, like, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the way it goes. I think to your point, though, the question then becomes, should it have been given as a foul for Tottenham or against Tottenham? Mm. And it, it like... I, I am not the biggest basketball fan. I'm kind of channeling uh, Eddie, I think it was, the Whoopi Goldberg movie where she becomes the head coach of the Knicks and desperately tries to teach a player what a charge is. I think that's kind of what I go to here, which is like, are your feet set? Are you are you like making a play on the ball as you're fouled? And I think this is the brilliance of Harry Kane a little bit, that in another scenario, I think if he keeps moving and kind of collides with Adam Lallana... Lalana's going up for a header at an angle. Harry Kane would be backing into a header at an angle. It's going to be a contact there. Harry Kane, I think, because he checks and sees Lalana, then it is a foul. Mm. I think this is where Harry Kane is really, really smart, that he sees Lalana, he recognizes he's going to come kind of barreling in for this one, and Harry Kane backs up and gets set. So now if you're the official, you're going to see that as, oh, he's trying to make on the play on the ball, and Adam Lalana coming in at an angle is preventing him from doing that. I think it's... You could say cynical, you could say smart from Harry Kane, but I think it's a lot of awareness to recognize if I if I put myself here, I'm going to get barged into, and at the very least, we're going to get a free kick at the top of the box. I, I think I'm still a little bit like, I guess his feet are on the box, but the foul occurs outside, but it continues on inside. That's where there's maybe a little bit more nuance for me, but I see the argument as to why maybe it could have been a foul on Harry Kane, but I think I also understand why it ends up being given. I have less of an issue with this one, is basically what I'm saying, than maybe the other two that we could still talk about. It's poop housery, Tay-Tay. Poop housery. Classic <laughs> it poop definitely housery is. Harry Kane. It uh, definitely but, but was. As you say, uh, let's move on to the other incident then with, with um, uh, Trossard being mm-hmm. brought down 
being grappled by Matt Doherty as the ball comes into the box there. Nothing given for that one. Yeah. Uh, and a VAR review was taken on, on that incident as well, which to my eyes is much, much more of a foul than the one that was given to Tottenham at the other end. How about your that? eyes? How did your eyes feel about that? I mean, I, I see the, the like... It's always confusing, right? Because like even in the Man United game, I think Harry Harry Maguire complains about having his jersey pulled, and it definitely was. But there are times when that gets like allowed to go on, and there are times when the referee will stop play and give a free kick. And it's always knowing kind of the details and the specifics of the situation. But here, that ball being played in, it feels like if there's not that jersey pull, there is going to be clean contact on it. That Trasar will be able to at least get some body part to it, and I think. When you have the jersey pull, like, like denying the natural form of the run, it's not that dissimilar from a player being unintentionally clipped. Did the player mean to do it? No, but there's still contact. You've still prevented them from continuing their run or continuing on with the ball. So it's going to be a foul. So to me, this one did feel like there was enough of a pull there that it it should have been at least maybe looked at a little bit longer than it was. I, I completely agree there. If he If he's not impeded by Matt Doherty there... He's getting to that ball. Yeah. He's one touch away from putting it in the back of the net, essentially, or at least having a clean shot away at goal. And it just bothers me, as you say, I don't think they spent enough time on this one. And it bothers me that VAR can be used to you know, determine whether a, a leg hair or a, mm-hmm. the edge of an elbow is offside. But when there's a clear, you know, a grapple in the box like this, it's not, it's not used effectively. No. So that, that's pretty frustrating, isn't it? It is. And I think the third incident that we can still talk about, uh, Sully March fouling or not fouling uh, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, uh, mm. that then leads to Brighton's equalizer. Another one that when I first saw it, I thought like, well, this goal is not going to count. This is obviously going to be called back for that foul. And then you watch it and you think, yeah, this is going to be called back for a foul. There is one angle, one specific angle where it looks like the tackle from uh, Sally March that he gets the ball first and he changes the trajectory of the ball. So right there, it maybe seems like, okay, Mm. he does make a play. And so maybe you could say he gets the ball. But then every other angle shows it doesn't really change, that the touch Hoiberg takes is is going the way he is going, and then he is no longer going that way because he's been taken out. And I think, again, the commentators here did a good job of pointing out that even if you do get the ball, it is one of those misnomers. It's the same thing to me as like, oh, he showed his studs. He showed the underside of his studs. That's a red card challenge. Here... Players always do this. I got the ball. I got the ball. It's like, yeah, a referee from a long time ago. It's one of my favorite quotes from when I was playing. Like, turned to a player who screamed that was like, yeah, you can't get the ball by going through him. <laughs> like, you got the ball, but you crushed him. <laughs> and that's the case here. That even if he does make a play on the ball, he still makes a much more aggressive play on uh, Hoiberg's leg. And that it's not given still is a little bit confusing to me because even if it is sort of the same time uh, that there is a touch to the ball, it's still taking out a player. So to me, that should have been given as a free kick as well. So what I'm wondering is going on here is the referee, Michael's not Michael Scott, Graham Scott. It it certainly wasn't uh, any Dunder Mifflin managers on on the field as far as I'm aware. Um, Is there an element of he didn't, he let this one go because he gave, the penalty to Harry Kane. Is there some sort of kind of karmic balance thing going on here? Because the big surprise so, was that he he went over to the screen mm-hmm. to watch the VR review, and 
I think this is the first instance, for, perhaps in the Premier League, where the referee has gone over there and, you know, the Stockley Park people were saying, mm. look at this, we think you may have got it wrong. And he sticks with his original decision. And there's been yeah. some accusations of that being his ego there, of like, why are we using this system if the referee's just going to overrule it anyway, which is his, his want to do that. But I wondered whether there was some kind of balancing out here. What do you think of that? So I am always curious about that as well. Every official I have spoken to, both on and off the record, will say that doesn't exist, that you don't do the makeup call thing that like once you've made a decision your job is to sort of remove it from your brain unless you're sort of ta- like tacking up fouls before you're giving a player a card mm-hmm. other than that you're not supposed to dwell on did this player do that oh he kind of got away with it or maybe that was unfair so maybe i'll make it up later they say they didn't do that i will say from the times that i refereed i absolutely did that now admittedly <laughs> it was at a much lower level it was like you know 11 year olds when i was officiating but i definitely remember times when i was like ah oh, i'm gonna get yelled at again if I make this call against this team Eh, maybe I won't like I I do think that there's something to that but that it's played behind closed doors maybe is less of an impact than I think what it ends up being for me at least is the official there are certain officials who I think are probably willing to look at that screen and really analyze it and not see it to your point maybe it's ego maybe it's just taking it personally but I think there are certain officials who look at it and wait to see if they got it right or wrong I'd say like the Juve uh the when Juve get their uh, their go-ahead goal when McKenney assists, but it's first give it as offside. You see the officials and they're just waiting to be told, oh, no, he was onside. It should stand. There doesn't seem to be a lot of like sort of personal involvement there. Whereas with this one, I think it's the official going over it, but thinking like, yeah, that's what I saw. I know what I saw. I saw it right the first time. I don't need to see it again. And so VAR exists to make sure that the officials saw what they think they saw. But if the official is sort of confident in the knowledge of like yeah i know what it looks like but i know he got ball first so it doesn't really matter i think that's what ends up happening that's my explanation i'm not sure if it is satisfactory one way or the other but i'm guessing that's what happens is it it just wasn't enough for him to change what he thinks he saw the first time so here's a question for you if the referee wasn't dunder mifflin's michael scott and it was mike (laughs) dean instead if it was mike dean yeah would you have a different perspective on him going over to the screen and going nope i was right i don't know you mean just because mike dean has to some people, a history of making himself part of the action. Correct. Um, I don't know, because I don't know how much I, I go in to those sort of things. There's only one official who I feel a grudge towards, uh, and it's uh, Junet Chakar, the Turkish official. That's for other reasons. Aside not from that, like Tom Mike Henning Dean. Overbo. What's that? Not Tom Henning Overbo. <laughs> no, not him. Not him. <laughs> but eh, maybe there's a few other ones that I, I have... <laughs> I have uh, my beefs for up with historically, but here, I mean, I don't think it changes much for me because I just, I don't, I don't really much go into the idea of officials are leaning one way or want to make it about them. I think mm-hmm. that there are certain officials who have. Mike Dean is definitely one who, rather than just be quiet and like not respond to a player complaining, will absolutely complain right back at them, and he does seem like the type who. You could almost see it in some of his games when, like, if a player's like, ref, come on, that he is borderline being like, ref, come on, like, back at them. <laughs> like, that does seem to be his style. And I think some officials have a more confrontational style and some are just kind of more stoic and deal with it. And when you have a bit more of that confrontational flagrant style, you could even say, I think then that does lend itself to, well, and now he's just trying to inject himself into the drama, but I wouldn't extend it that far. Well, regardless of, ego and Mm -hmm. opinion on who the referee was i think this was the fundamental a really good example of how var hasn't really made things better 
objectively speaking. Mm. Maybe not objectively speaking, but when, when you look at a game like this, there, there are three big things that, that VAR did not clear up. Has it made the game any more accurate? No. Has it uh, um, eliminated human error? No. So why it's just made things a bit slower, basically, is what it's done in this game, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably part of it. It slows things down. I think there are moments... I still, generally speaking, have that approach of like the comfort comfort of knowing that if the player was a half yard offside, but the AR didn't catch it, you know VAR will. And, it, oh, there was definitely a foul in the lead up to that one that should have been given. You can sort of rest comfortably knowing that VAR will catch that. So I'm still okay with it but i take your point that then there are the moments where it's like well but now i'm confused and so i think if you approach it from a perspective of it's a confusing thing that i think is trying to make the game better i that's kind of where i'm comfortable existing in as opposed to like this thing is dumb and i don't like it <laughs> that's um, the space i like to live in anyway that's fair um, uh, should, we, well, should, we, should, we, should we talk about something else aside from var like either one of these two teams <laughs> i was just about to say can All we right. talk about the two teams involved in this game um Brighton, mm-hmm. um, much like Barney's blog on How I Met Your Mother, they've gotten a lot better. <laughs> oh, boy. They have, right? Although the lack of attacking options and some of the starts or lack of starts, uh, Neil Mopé not figuring in this one or on the bench at all. Brighton, uh, as has been pointed out by people wiser than myself, certainly, didn't really have many attacking outlets. A lot of times would counterattack or would be able to get into decent chances, but then had one player committed forward, maybe two players committed forward. So yeah. looking better, looking stronger, looking like there's still that fight and that determination, but certainly going to need to figure out uh, other ways to create chances and score goals. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think they may may have to do some more recruitment yeah. um, in in the, in the break. But I, I would have complete faith in them doing that. I mean, and doing it on the cheap as well, getting getting Lamptey for four million, getting Lalada on a free. They've done some really good business, and they've really strengthened this team. Uh, Brighton are a team who, you know, I I feel like incrementally they get better and better every time I see yeah. them. Pretty pretty attractive play in this one. They kept the ball really well, and as you say, if if it wasn't for a slight bluntness in attacking options they be, they would have been really strong in this in this uh, in this yep. game and there's a there's a narrative going around taylor and we can discuss this about tottenham being potential league title contenders and this game against brighton being a real big test and if they overcame this hurdle against a pretty solid brighton side then they are going to win the league let's all put our mortgages on it what do you th- <laughs> what do you think about that I would not put my mortgage on that, but I, I have maintained that Tottenham would finish at least top four this season, and mm-hmm. I, I, I will stick with that because I think especially I – will, I will again say I think a lot of that is is the All or Nothing documentary, having reviewed that with you and knowing – even if it is just sort of narrative or PR or whatever, knowing Jose Mourinho having that idea of you all are too soft, you don't have that aggressiveness, you don't have that fight that you have to have to compete – so consistently to win the title. Talk about Manchester United and their lack of consistency. We've talked about that with Arsenal at times this season, with Chelsea as well, with Man City even. And I think Tottenham, you're seeing just little signs that there is that fight. There is the cynicism of Harry Kane that, like, I'm not trying to say he doesn't do that without Jose Mourinho, but that feels like a thing that Jose Mourinho wants them to do. If you see an opportunity to game the system, to make something happen, take that chance. That's one aspect. But then looking at, say... 
like I kept reminding myself, like Endombele is starting as the number ten and looking very good and looking like a player that has been integrated into the side and is a key part of what Jose Mourinho wants. Mm. That speaks volumes to me, I, and I think just like the like Eric Lamella continuing to be this player who will like built like like he's like a little bit mickey from snatch to me like harder than a coffin nail like he seems like you should be able to knock him around and yet will maybe one punch knock you out i thought uh reggie has proved that he's a great signing so too is doherty uh or doherty excuse me that gareth bale comes in and like it's an uncontested header he does a good job of adjusting his position a little bit but that it's one signing who came in at the same time as the other signing like assisting for the goal that's got to make you excited i just think there are lots of reasons for optimism even in a game that wasn't so pretty that wasn't necessarily this like oh they won four nil a comprehensive victory but that they scrapped didn't sort of get bloodied or didn't let getting bloodied make them then lose their heads but instead found a way to win it's it's a great result for tottenham and i think their fans should be optimistic about how things look and how things will look going forward I'm 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 betting the farm on them now, Taylor. You've persuaded me completely here. Uh, um, in all seriousness, I, I I it's a bet I would consider taking. You can get sort of seven or eight to one on Tottenham at the moment, and you're relying on a lot of variables here. Obviously, you're relying on Harry Kane, Gareth Bale, and Hyung Min Son all or yep. maybe two thirds of them staying fit, and that's a big ask for Tottenham. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think there's other. Uh, sorry to interject, but there's one other thing I wanted to make sure to note. I did in watching the Lamptey goal, which is a great goal. It's a great finish. Say what you want about the situation and should it have been a foul. The one thing that I think was a major problem that because everybody's focused on should the foul have been given or not, like they don't notice that Son Heung-min completely switches off for this goal. And it's the thing that like mm-hmm. the exact same thing that Hugo Lloris screamed at him for last season. It's the same thing here that he is marking Tarek Lamptey and then basically just stops and starts watching the ball in the middle. Yeah. And then you can, you can see it if you go back and watch the highlight recognizes really like maybe a half second after it's too late. Like, Oh no, I have not tracked my, and he goes flying to try to make up that difference and cannot. So credit to him for at least putting in that effort at the end, but that he switches off. There are still those little moments that I think will make Jose Mourinho's head explode. But aside (laughs) from that, a very good performance. Well, I think Sun actually had a pretty poor game in general, but it does Mm -hmm. speak to Tottenham's strength that one of their, maybe their best attacking option. Well, Harry Kane, but (laughs) in recent months, what yeah. you could argue is their best attacking option, having an off day and can still put in this kind of performance. I think that speaks well to the strength of the team overall. And yeah, I'm going to put all the money I have on Tottenham <laughs> winning the league now. And, and, and to say, <laughs> as I say, there are variables there in terms of everyone staying yeah. fit. There are variables in terms of, uh, you know, uh, Liverpool and Manchester City not being at full strength, which you could argue they are definitely not at the moment. So if all these things come together, Taylor, yeah. Tottenham, Premier League champions... It's, it think? has a strange ring. It has a strange does, ring to it? it. But I think like the injury to Van Dyke certainly hurts Liverpool in yep. a way that few other injuries, I think, could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, every other team we've talked about with consistency issues, we haven't quite seen them hit a consistent run of very good form. So it's not surprising to me that it's Liverpool 1, Tottenham 2. Certainly more surprising to me that it's Everton and Southampton rounding out the top four at this point. Uh, but a good win for Southampton this weekend. So you never know. But I, I think, yeah, Tottenham... As long as they're able to keep people mostly healthy and they don't have too many injuries, if they don't lose two center backs or two of their attacking options, I think that they are in a uh, a pretty good position. Uh, I don't know if we would say the same thing about Barcelona, which is where I'd like to go next. They draw one-to-one away at Alaves this weekend. 
And I am conflicted about this one. I, I tweeted out that I was kind of confused about Messi. I should have recognized that I was going to get uh, some people who like shared my uh, confusion or concern and then a lot more who got annoyed with me for questioning the uh, merits of Lionel Messi or had the audacity to wonder if he should be walking quite so much. Uh, Ryan, you also, I would say, when I tweeted you or messaged you about that, I think you responded like, this is the thing he does, right? Like, we know yeah. he's going to walk at times, so maybe it's it's silly to kind of overly focus on it, and yet it's a thing that I find myself doing. So I'm wondering if you share that concern or if you have reasons for why you think it's maybe not as big of an issue. I don't necessarily share the concern of Messi cool. walking and being at walking pace for a lot of the game is an issue because, as as you say, we have seen that for many a year and that, that is part of his thing that he'll suddenly mm-hmm. burst into action. But I think it does paint part of a broader picture of an issue with Lionel Messi who do, who is kind of behaving the same way you might behave if you were in a menial job and you'd handed in your notice and you had a few more days to work. Yeah, It's... It, it, there's there's a different attitude. He got a bit aggressive when he got a yellow card for kicking the ball away here, um, which was sort of pent up from the fact that he was fouled uh, in the build up, to, or, you know, in the build up to what loves his goal, I believe, um, and he he was getting kicked around quite a lot yeah. by a pretty a pretty kicky yes. <laughs> love is a defensive line i would say um, it, it, it was just to interject for a moment it was it felt like their entire defensive approach was like all right we're going to be very defensive we're going to have mm. two banks of four we're not going to let anybody oh messi has the ball kick him like it yeah. was just <laughs> that it was really it. was like this very defensive plan <laughs> but also foul messi every time he has the ball but yeah messi looks he looks increasingly frustrated he looks you know he, he's, he's he's moody at the best of times you could say he looks moody a little less energy on the field but also the kind of the drive and energy that he had had previously that would have helped certain shots go in, I feel, yeah. is not there anymore. There was opportunities where he sort of beat a player and would have bent a, a, a shot round a goalkeeper and nine times out of ten it would have gone in the net. We see that we saw it happen in this game where it didn't yeah. go in the net. We've seen it happen in many other games previously and, uh, you know, not getting any goals from open play in, in, in a pretty long time. As an opt to Jose... Jose, sorry, um, a stat. Lionel Messi made 45 direct free kick shots in his last 41 games in all competitions for Barcelona and has scored just once back in July against Osasuna. So it's, 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 it's painting his whole picture of Lionel Messi in that he's just not converting. The, the final product isn't there. And I think it's because there is something wrong, but maybe it's sort of an attitude problem that he has at the moment. I think I think you you've helped me better get to the bottom of like my my feelings on this one and I think what it is is that in seasons past I know that Messi would walk and I honestly it used to be a frustrating thing for me uh and I think like Daryl would always be like yeah but then he took four people on beat them and scored you can't really like be so upset about that and I think that's totally true I think that's because at the time Barcelona were winning they had the talent around him that I think allowed him to do that a little bit more that knew he was going to do that that managers would plan for yeah he's not really going to be part of a press he's not going to drop in and cover this player so we've got to make sure we've got coverage and managers would do that and I think it didn't stand out in a negative way and on top of that, I think Barcelona, from a, a board standpoint, at, like certainly things weren't great, but not where they are right now. And I think mm-hmm. the Bartomeu resigning, the kind of public feuding, uh, like like is Ronald Koeman even the first choice? Will he be there this time next season regardless of results? Is it going to be Xavi? There are so many questions about Barcelona and things I think, at least for me from an outside perspective, feel 
like there's a negativity around the club that yes. a thing that was never not necessarily a negative in the past when everything else is negative it just becomes harder to see it as a feature and it slowly becomes more of a like defect almost and i'm not saying Lionel messi has defects to his game because I'm not stupid. He's Lionel Messi. Like, he is incredibly good. And there are, especially in the second half, when Kuman does change things up pretty aggressively, you start to see a little bit more of him sort of cheating on that line and then getting in behind at the last second or just getting by somebody or, or just like you see some smiles here as he combines and it doesn't quite come off. I think yeah. the appreciation of like, ah, oh, you tried something there and I liked it versus like, why aren't you trying that? Like, that's the, the, the difference I see at times is he's always happy. To me, when there's like combinations going and the ball's moving and we're trying different things, once it's like, oh my gosh, it took you five seconds to play a pass that should have taken you a half second, that's where I feel like you start to see him more obviously frustrated. Mm. So I think, again, it's not so much a messy thing is where I land on. It's more of a all of Barcelona thing and maybe a little bit Ronald Koeman thing. Yeah, I think yeah, you've hit a lot of important points. And we'll say Messi was probably the best player on the pitch over 90 minutes. Let's be fair about it. But mm-hmm. not quite at Messi standards, not having the final product. And uh, if we're going to accuse anyone of walking around too much, Sergio Busquets, who <laughs> it just seems to be... I know I've laid into him yeah. last week as well, but just seem, his physical decline seems more and more evident with each game. And, you know... he. he there are some players in his position who would also have physical decline as they get older, but they have sort of a really impressive passing range to make up for it. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have that either. Well, he, he, to me, the thing that I can't get over with Sergio Busquets is like, I think of him as this like fixture that he is sitting at the base of that midfield ahead of the two center backs. He keeps the ball moving. He's, he's very tidy in possession. He won't take three touches when two touches will do. He won't take two touches when one touch will do. Mm-hmm. And instead, in this game, I kept seeing him sort of running out to try to put pressure on somebody or trying to get forward, but then trying to get back and then like sliding. And like, he's just sort of being asked to do a lot more than I think he is comfortable with or yeah. even to the extent of like, again, from very much from an outsider perspective, like it reminds me of those times that Jurgen Klinsmann would just tell Christian Pulisic for the national team, like, go have fun, go try stuff out there. Like the briefing to some extent doesn't feel like he's being told specifically what he needs to do. So there are yeah. times when both he and De Jong as that midfield partnership will like De Jong will drift wide to cover one flank and Busquets drifts wide to cover the other. But those are the two holding midfielders who have now vacated the center of the park. That's just, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't, really understand why he's still being asked to do that aside from Ronald Koeman doesn't want to drop Sergio Busquets because that is instantly going to get a lot of headlines and be sort of an issue for him. Yeah, you can't drop a La Masia graduate who's part of the furniture. I can I get what Koeman's coming up against there. But I think you're right there with the double pivot with De Jong. It's not really working very well. They don't cover for each other. And Busquets as you say, might be asked to go to, to take a more advanced position at times, but he mm-hmm. keeps getting caught wildly out of position. And he was for uh, Alavas' goal as well, the Luis Riajo goal, which was obviously a, a, a mistake from yep. Neto and Pique, a, a big mistake from Neto, particularly getting the ball underneath his feet there. Now, which... I, I have thoughts on that one, but yeah, okay, we'll come back well, to well, it. My thought is, why not hoof the ball? Do we have to play short passes <laughs> every single time? You're a goalkeeper anyway, but the, the point of that goal I was going to make was that Busquets was wildly out of position when the ball came down there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and Longley as well did not cover himself in glory with the most half-hearted attempt at an interception you're ever likely to yeah. see. 
It was it was awkward because it was Phil Shane and Ray Hudson doing the commentary, and Longley for a moment looks like he is about to put in a like a Sergio Ramos tackle of in open field he has no business winning this, and yet somehow he has not only won it but won it cleanly and, and like come away with possession, and then he doesn't, and you can hear Ray Hudson be like, Ooh, oh. Like you can hear him get excited and then be like, "Oh, that didn't happen." And I'm with you that I think if he if he just sticks in a little bit more, is just a little bit more aggressive. I think he comes away with that. Yeah, I'm not saying that that is entirely the reason why he subbed off at halftime, but it certainly didn't help his case. The Nets are one I have a little bit more sympathy for, but I do think it is a little bit of a lack of a familiarity between the two because watching it from a couple different angles, I think. The way the ball is rolling back, I think he is coming off of his line to collect it himself. Like, I think he's going to slide in and try to kind of pick it up at the top of the 18. And I think he thinks PK is shepherding the ball so he can do that. So he is coming off his line full speed, ready to intercept. And then PK passes the ball back to him. So I think that's where that sort of confusion comes from is because in his mind, it's a little bit like what I was talking about with Pogba that I think for Neto, he thinks I'm coming out full speed. I'm going to get this ball. Oh, it's passed to me. And I think he doesn't really know what to do with it in that moment but is still a professional footballer and I think probably could have taken a touch and passed it or just hoofed it out of bounds. So <laughs> yeah. I'm with you there. But I I was sort of really confused why there was that moment of chaos. And I do think that's where it comes from is sort of a lack of communication and a lack of awareness of what the other's going to do leads to a goal for Alaves, which is certainly not what Barcelona wanted. But then they're able to sort of figure some things out. I would say they get better chances. It's still a one-to-one draw. But I think that you see them have a response in the second half and you see yeah. them start to figure things out. And some of the substitutions, again, I think Kuman makes a triple substitution at halftime. Like that sort of, that sort of change, that sort of aggressiveness, I think is necessary to shake things up. It's Longley, Dembele and Busquets come off. It's Trincao, Pjanic and Pedri come on. Serginho Dest joins them a little while later. Mm. Um, but yeah, I thought, I think I'm with you overall that though this wasn't an ideal result for Barcelona, I don't think it was quite as bad as maybe some folks have made it out to be. No, and we have to give credit to Alaves as well because their defending was yep. excellent. They they kept out so many chances. Their, their goalkeeper was superb in this game. And as we established, lots and lots of lovely tactical fouls. Yeah. That, uh, you know, yes. Pep, Pep Guardiola would have been proud of all those tactical fouls <laughs> being put in on, on this game. And you mentioned the commentary. I have to. I had to laugh. Um, when Antron Griezmann scored, by the way, it was a full moon. It was Halloween. Oh, Until Griezmann scored. Coincidence. Um, with that really nice chip finish. Um, Ray Hudson described it as a bit of a gangster goal. I don't know what that meant, but I liked it. And he also said Antoine Antoinette, which I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> Antoine Antoinette? Revolutionary. <laughs> oh, no. He said that about himself? He just said Antoine Antoinette. That's exactly what he said. I don't know whether he, he didn't get it out quite right, but it was obviously a Marie Antoinette reference that he was oh boy. had in his locker somewhere but it made me laugh all the same I mean, it's a good uh, finish nice to see so at least there's that getting a yeah, yeah. A, a very good finish as you say and uh and uh Alaves are a team you know who, who are capable of this kind of thing Barcelona had 24 shots in this game and they deserve full credit for mm-hmm. uh for um for, for parking the bus as they did so full credit to them even if they don't get the uh maybe the Three points that they would have hoped for. We still have Barcelona in 12th with eight points after six games. Uh, Real Sociedad remain on top with a game, mm. uh, one game more played than Real Madrid, who are second, Atletico Madrid third. We're going to talk about Serie A and a little Bundesliga in a moment. But first, we're going to talk about today's sponsor, Manscaped, who just released the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Uh, 
I, I am reading the copy here, but I would say this myself. If you take a look in the mirror, I guarantee you'll see some hairs sticking out of the nose and ear holes. It's an ever-present thing, and like we, we try not to get, do, do too much TMI on this show, but Ryan, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like the closer I tick to 40, the more suddenly my hair is like, nah, not so much on the head, but definitely the ears. Let's focus on the ears. Have you had this super fun experience as well? Yeah, without getting too personal, the hair redistribution as I approach yeah. forty has certainly yeah. had its effect. And I, I, I'm not much of an ear hair guy, but I will, I will concede that uh, um, nose hair I, I, I regularly do need to take care of. And the weed whacker, good gosh, what a wonderful way to take care of that nose hair. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it eradicates it pretty effectively, I would say, with a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. I'm not even going to pretend to know what that means other than to say that it gets rid of the hair. Sounds good. I think it's just that you have to learn to look for it, right? When you're 16 and you're learning to shave, you're not taught like, oh, and make sure you pay attention to your ear hair as well. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's – it's just the uh, the mental arithmetic you have to do. But at least with the Weed Whacker, you don't have to worry about how to deal with it because its intelligently contoured design enhances the trimming experience. It's also waterproof, which makes for easy operation and cleaning. If you're going to have it in the bathroom, you want to make sure something is waterproof. That's my takeaway. Fellas, question for the fellas here. Statement for the fellas here. 79% mm-hmm. of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is yeah. a major turnoff. This is something you can take care of with uh, your manscape routine with the Weed Whacker. And I'll say something as well, Taylor. You mentioned the 360-degree rotary dual blade system, which sounds super fancy because it is. I have made the mistake in the past, in my misguided youth, to oh, use no. a cheaper yeah, nose hair Uh-oh. trimmer. And maybe even if you use one where the battery's run a little low, you'll pay for ah, that. You'll pay for you that. Will. You've got to use the equipment. You've got to use the necessary equipment for these jobs. That's right. Use the right equipment. Use the properly charged right equipment at that. <laughs> uh, and if you want to use that equipment, you can get 20% off with free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code TSS20. What are you waiting for? Go whack your weeds, say <laughs> Manscaped. <laughs> Thank you very much Sorry. to Manscaped for sponsoring this episode and making Ryan laugh. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you to Weston McKinney for uh, making all American hearts happy. So too did Josh Sargent with his goal this weekend. Joe Lowry and I later on in the week are going to do a sort of Americans roundup as we did last week. But for right now, Ryan, let's talk about Spezia 1, Juve 4. Spezia is a fun name to say. Can I get it out of the gate to start off with? You absolutely may. It still reminds me of the Russian, like, uh, whatever Spetsnaz is. I always think of them for a moment. But yeah, Spezia, <laughs> it's a good name. It's a good name. <laughs> well, they're a newly promoted club, um, you know, uh, uh, coming up against Juventus, this was a big historic day for them, as the commentators did remind us uh, again and again in this one. And uh, uh, I suppose the headline here is the is the man who came on and after one. Well, there's a couple yep. of headlines, but the main headline is the man who came on and after 126 seconds yep. got back on that score sheet, baby. I'm talking, of course, about Cristiano Ronaldo getting two goals in this one yep. um, uh, shortly after coming on, as I say, around the hour mark with an assist from Alvaro Morata. And also a lovely cheeky Penenka for the fourth goal. Was yep. that a Pirlo tribute? 
I, I mean, I like to think it was. <laughs> I, I, I hope he has that awareness and ability in the moment to be like, oh, a nice homage to Pirlo. Uh, but I think it was probably just him doing Ronaldo things, which yeah. maybe after the fact he can explain Oh, there, away. Is, there is a clip, by the way. Um, uh, just uh, one more thing on Ronaldo. There's a clip Please. of him talking post-match in English, and he says, Ronaldo is back. This is the important thing. And the look on his face is absolutely horrifying. It's like the, the really big, wide smile. Look it up. It's fun. <laughs> is it as horrifying as the statue of him? <laughs> Equally so, I would argue. Oh, boy. Oh, Equally boy. So. so a view behind the curtain for listeners. Uh, Ryan sent over like his notes for today uh, before I sent him mine. And I had not yet watched uh, this game when I saw that his question was, did the results paper over some defensive issues? And I was sort of like tilted my head at that one like oh they won four to one man like really we're gonna we're gonna go negative until you watch this game and realize i think the point that you've already made ryan is that it's one to one until right around the 60th minute when ronaldo comes on he gets a brace as a second half substitute but three of the four come in the final 30 minutes of this game and the first 60 is a bit more challenging and i would say there are similarities between what juve were doing and what some of their problems were and what manchester united were doing i think they they really struggled with a lack of width they basically had four central midfielders playing in this one and i think maybe not chiesa but weston mckinney as a right midfielder but mostly a central midfielder gave them very little width and i think he had to do a lot of sort of figuring things out on the fly so I think you're right to some extent that this result maybe looks a little bit better than it actually was. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'll say on McKinney, I thought it was pretty impressed. He looked good going forward, got the assist um, for, for Avara Morata's uh, goal, which was actually a goal, not offside. Hurrah. Hey! Let's pull some uh, party poppers for Avara Morata, finally getting a goal not um, <laughs> ruled out after a VAR check. Congratulations. Yay! Um, M- McKinney, yay. <laughs> McKinney did very well. Like a good creative option. Got some good crosses coming in. Couple of turnovers, I think. I haven't looked at the yep. stats, but it seemed like he lost the ball a few times. Which, uh, but but on balance, um, a, a good performance from Weston McKinney, I would say. But um, if you look at the I would goal, say, go ahead. Yeah, I would say I would say like like it was like I thought he did a really good job for what he was being asked to do. But as I said, when he's playing right midfield, like if you look at the lineup, if you look at the formation, that's where they have him. But mm. more consistently, I saw it as Juve in a back four with like sort of four very tight, compact midfielders in front of them. Like they basically seem to want to block up the middle, but what that ended up meaning was that McKenney always had to deal with uh, Polbega, the uh, midfielder, and then Bastoni, who would kind of go hurtling down the left side as the left back, yeah. because Quadrado was dealing with uh, Diego Farias. That basically meant McKenney kept having to split the difference and. If Pobaga stayed central, then he would have to sort of try to stay between the two of them. And if you go and look at Spezia's goal, it literally is that issue that he is marking both of them at the same time, can't decide which one he needs to go to, in yeah. the end decides to go try to deal with Bastoni, and leaves uh, Pobaga in the middle, who then scores the goal. So it looks bad for Weston McKinney to some extent because it seems almost like he runs away from the eventual goal scorer. But I think it's also speaks to a positional problem that he was being asked to mark two and sometimes three different players. I'm not trying to let him off the hook. I'm trying to use that as in a way of saying, I think that though they get a result, to your point initially, Ryan, there are moments of like, ooh, that didn't work well. That was an overload. A better team who aren't 17th in the table right now might have caused them more problems. Absolutely. Taylor, 
You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Didn't sing that correctly. Never mind. Uh, but the uh, the, the uh, Spetsy goal was the result of a counter-attack. And as you say, there was the issue with, with the marking on the mm-hmm. on the uh, Juventus right channel there. But there was a square ball that came into Pavega. And if you freeze-frame it there, there's seven Juventus shirts, very ugly orange mm-hmm. shirts in the box. And Pavega is <laughs> completely... Yeah, uh, Pavega's completely unmarked in the box when he gets his shot off. Was, I think it was Artur who just didn't pick him up at all. So yeah. there was uh, maybe it's a question of people being asked to do too much and not knowing their duties or just sort of a bit of lack of organization, which you may expect from a manager with limited experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, and then it was strange because I was like, I looked at. Uh, Juve's lineup. I look at like like Ronaldo coming on, and I thought like, oh, maybe this is just like a weakened team. And then it's a realization like, no, this is pretty much their first team. It's just Ronaldo doesn't play. He's still coming back from COVID. So yeah, I think like I'm not necessarily going to knock Andrea Pirlo, given that Juve get the win, are still near the top of the table. They're not top, but they're not that far off. Um, Milan top. We'll talk about them in a second. Mm. But I think there are definitely still some. Maybe worrying concerns that you would not have expected with the team getting a 4-1 to win. Yeah. One more question for you on this one Please. about Juventus, Taylor. McKenny getting the uh, the assist for Murata, a very unselfish uh-huh. assist. Yeah. Should he, if you I were him, would you have taken this. the shot? Would I knew you, you were going to ask this. Would you take the shot? Because bear in mind, it was unselfish and the goal got in, but he's, yeah. he's making a pass to a player who was very much offside in the in the build-up to the goal, but obviously wasn't in, mm-hmm. in that um, phase of play. Not interfering in that phase of play, I should say, but pass it to the man who's allergic to being onside or take that shot yourself. What would you do? I mean, I've, I've decided that he's just best friends with Alvaro Morata and wanted to give him <laughs> confidence. I, I thought that as well. That, like, like, I think you will sometimes hear, like, shoot or shoot, you want to see your goal scorer's goal scorer. But I would argue that Weston McKinney is not necessarily the goal scorer for Juve. I would say Alvaro Morata much more is. I'm okay with it because this felt to me like he sort of evaluated the situation quickly and decided, I don't really love my shooting angle here. I don't really back myself to finish calmly, but I do back myself to pull the goalkeeper out and play it into Morata. And I think he decides to do that. I would then argue that maybe he makes that decision at a time when Morata is onside and is maybe, or offside and is a little bit fortunate that he gets back onside in time for when that ball is played. But I think it, it probably is like, I, I wouldn't care at all if it had just been like a square ball, it's tapped home, oh, what a great play. That it requires VER and looking at it again, I think is where I do share a little bit of that. Like, maybe it would have been better if he finished, but I think in the end, it's a goal, so I'm okay with it. One more thing I'll say about this Juventus side and Pirlo's tactics, Taylor, is it felt a little bit meat and potatoes 1990s in some ways. A 4 4 2 lining up, yeah, and right? a couple of the goals were really, really direct. Um, the Ronaldo's goal, uh, you know, after he's on the field for a few minutes, uh, Murata receiving the ball in midfield from Artur, I think, a really good ball coming through, and he feeds Ronaldo, but it's this really direct play right through the middle um, with Ronaldo rounding the keeper to score in the end, and Rabio's goal, which was very enjoyable mm-hmm. as well, comes from a long ball down the left channel from Chiesa uh, over the top to Rabio, who manages to beat the offside trap, beats the defender too, and sort of does that walking it into the net thing, and it, it looked really good, but both very direct, and uh, coming from, from, from the setup that Pirlo had here, it seemed like it was almost like keep it simple, stupid kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. 
And they did, and they did, and they won. So there you go. They do not then go top of the table. As I said, they are third. Milan, top of the table, 16 points. They get another win this weekend. And Zlatan Ibrahimovic, instrumental in that result. Uh, They get a 2-1 to win over Udinese on the road. Uh, Ryan, how excited were you to see Zlatan doing Zlatan things? I was very excited to be transported back to uh, the mid-2000s to see Milan top of the table with Zlatan banging yep. them in. Uh, what a joy. What a yeah. joy for Zadni Primovic to get the winning goal here from an overhead kick. Not his most impressive overhead kick in his cannon, but no. he does have quite a few. But Sweden, uh, England will forever be number one. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, but and you could say, yes, there were basically two defenders on the floor at the time that he did do the overhead kick. But also, he was given quite a big shove by the goalkeeper, but still, he's so, so strong that he manages to still have the audacity to pull off an overhead kick in on the edge of the six-yard box to get the goal there. So really, really impressive stuff from him. I'm, the- I'm confused, if you don't mind me interrupting for a moment. Do you mind? Yeah, I do, but you can do it anyway. We'll talk later. <laughs> uh, the overhead kick confused me a little bit because... He is making a play on the ball. He's tracking it the whole way. Obviously, he ends up scoring. But Rodrigo Bachao, the midfielder, is coming in to try to put a header onto it. And I don't know if he ends up getting kicked in the face, but he ends up being one of those players on the ground holding his face. There's definitely some contact at some point. And I'm still, like, I'm not trying to be sort of Scrooge here, but that felt like it could have been a dangerous play. Like, Zlatan goes for an overhead kick and almost or does kick somebody in the face while mm-hmm. kicking the ball. The only thing I can think is that Pachau, because he's sort of leaning in, is like lowering his head down. And then the argument is like you are sort of putting yourself at risk by going into that one as opposed to keeping your head in a more natural position and just getting kicked in the face. Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult one because I, there was one or two yellow cards elsewhere for high yeah. high challenges like that. And it does... It, a big part of Ibrahimovic's game to get his boot um, True. more than six feet in the air, isn't it? So it's a difficult one to uh, to, to officiate. Yeah. But I think the right decision yeah. has been made in this instance. <laughs> yeah, I think and, oh, it really would require like some next-level cojones to be like, nope, not counting that one. I bet uh, Dunder Mifflin's Michael Scott would have done it. Get yeah, himself in the headlines. Anyway, there um, there's, there's sort of this <laughs> perception, Taylor, that, that Milan are, you know, they are Zlatan powered at the moment, and to a great yeah. extent they are. Um, but he's not the only reason that they're doing well, that they're doing so, uh, so well at the top of the table. I'm going to make a parallel to Arsenal here in that Please. they have just made their midfield a lot better. And it's mm-hmm. that Benacer and Kessie pivot in particular, yep. which is really impressive. Um, you know, that, that's. You know, probably got one of the best midfields, if not the best field midfield in Serie A right now. Those two um, really, really caught my attention in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's a big upgrade they've they've done. I think um, Pioli's uh, playing a sort of more high pressure pressing game at the moment. You could probably say um, Rebic is doing doing really good stuff in the midfield as well. I just think they've had sort of these subtle and maybe not so subtle upgrades all around the field to get to where they are at the moment and. It's particularly the midfield that I'd say that is that has bolstered them. Yeah, I think I think I'm with you, especially when it comes to the midfield, because say the acquisition of Sandro Tonali, uh, talking to David Amoyal, I think he's he is sort of this like heir apparent. He's going to be running the midfield. Mm. It's going to be his, but maybe isn't right now. And I think that he does end up coming in for Benacer, but doesn't start this game shows you that strength that you can come, bring in this sort of impact midfielder who you're not going to lose anything with but you can instead keep things fresh i think that shows you how strong that they've got three starting options for two spots i think chalonolu being played central seems to be having a pretty big impact in terms of like the chances he's able to help create and facilitate although i think zlatan 
ahead of him is a big part of that. And then yep. even say Brahim Diaz, another like what, 21 year old, I think, coming in off the bench to have an impact. So I think I'm with you that you're seeing Milan have some of the faces we've seen there in seasons past, Cassie being one of them. But then some of the signings they've made and how they're able to sort of blend things and have some youngsters coming through, but have that veteran experience. I think, yeah, it's. Uh, a lot of reason for optimism for Milan. If you had to bet money, Ryan, would you put your money on Tottenham winning the Premier League or Milan winning Serie A? I will get better odds with Tottenham, so I'll take it for that reason <laughs> alone. But um, I think that, yeah, the, there's, there's a, there are a lot of parallels with Arsenal with that, that midfield pivot doing really yeah. well. Uh, or the midfield too, I should say. And sort of the wingers as well getting the chance here with uh, uh, Brahim Diaz, as you say, coming on and Rebic coming on. Two mm-hmm. real big different makers in wide positions there. And they really did change things up for them. So th- they have a lot of strength and depth in that area. And uh, yeah, ni- as I say, nice to be back to uh, 15 years ago. I wish my nose hair was. It, it is. <laughs> so do I, my friend. Not just for you, <laughs> but for me too. Uh, th- and then the other thing I would say that like should uh, be a po- is, or is a positive thing for Milan is just that like like pe- people know what Zlatan is. People know what he's going to do. But it's not a like, oh, he's a super fast striker. We just got to put somebody with wheels on him and that will negate him. He's not a forward who like, oh, he's only ever going to shoot with his right foot. So just make sure he can't doesn't get that off. Put him on his weaker foot. We're fine. Even if you know what he's going to do, he is so versatile and flexible and technical that like – Short of injury, he's really difficult to mark out of a game, provided he has talent around him to facilitate attacks themselves. So as long as he stays relatively healthy and plays most of their games, I don't see them having a particular downturn in form. So I think we're going to have a very exciting uh, season in Italy, for sure, with uh, your sort of perennial challengers in there, but not as in there right now. And then some other names like Milan, like Sassuolo, uh, higher up the table. So excited to continue to watch Serie A, excited to continue to watch Bundesliga. Our final game that we're going to talk about would be Glapsack, oops, uh, Gladbach 1, Leipzig 0, Gladbach with the lovely all-black kits and a lovely 1-0 win, all three points for them. Ryan, your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, those kits first. They were yeah. glorious, weren't they? Uh, Brucey yeah. Dortmund did a, a all-black kit recently, which was lovely as well. But, oh, I just like them so much. I, I, <laughs> I want all of the black kits. Um, but this was um, Gladbach's first ever win against the historic uh, yeah. RB Leipzig. Uh, their first win in nine, we should say, because that's the amount of times they've met. Yeah, that was uh, that was a key distinction there. It was like, they've <laughs> never won in eight games. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but uh, yeah, a well deserved win here. Mm-hmm. Gladbach look very good. Uh, they're unbeaten in the last six home matches as well, and they've they climbed up the table. I think they're in fifth now, if my memory is correct. Correct. Um, it just seemed like a story here of RB Leipzig missing a lot of chances, maybe struggling, showing showing that they're struggling a little bit without Timo Werner. Um, mm-hmm. Zoma had a, a few a, a, um, some chances that he missed. Uh, Sabitzer. Um, a few chances, yeah. Soloth, a few, quite a few as well. Yeah, um, I don't know. It, it, it just it, felt like they were a little bit blunt up top. It reminds me. I, I know people love it when when we compare professional soccer and world class athletes to FIFA. Uh, but I've tried to been I've been trying to convince myself that FIFA 21 was a good investment. Still not entirely sure it was. But there are those moments when you're playing FIFA when like if you like if you just sort of get lazy or you're just like ah I'm gonna score eventually and you start getting like oh you overly complicate things and you're looking for passes when you should be shooting and you just lose a little bit of that sharpness a little bit of that edge and mm-hmm. then you start losing games that is my way of explaining what's happening here because Leipzig it, it just like there were so many opportunities that you saw them miss or you saw them not take cleanly or there was a block at the last minute and the response wasn't that like 
anger. There wasn't that like, oh, we got to be better. We got to make something happen that you like that fight that you want to see from a team that's really trying to push to that next level. It was more of that like, oh, I should have done better. Oh, well, next time. Like there wasn't just that ruthlessness that you need to see. And I think there was from Gladbach that when they do get their chances, they almost take another one to get it to 2-0. But it's like it's not as though Gladbach had a number of chances. It was basically just that when they did, they capitalized and made them count. And I just don't think that was the case for Leipzig. So, yeah, if that's Timo Werner not being there, if that's them just kind of failing to settle into this new season or being still being sort of impacted by that 5-0 loss to Man United, I'm not sure. But this was a, a more worrying game than I expected it to be from a Leipzig perspective. Yeah, I'm not particularly worried about Leipzig. They're fine, no. but uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I see what you say there. And um, yeah, uh, Gladbach sort of made more of their chances. Turam, I think, hit the woodwork. He, he, he was very impressive in this game mm-hmm. as well. But I do love that Hannes Wolf got the goal here. Yeah, uh, Hannes Wolf on loan from RB Leipzig. Yeah, th- worth remembering that uh, though the Premier League has usually has those clauses inserted that you cannot play against the team from whom you're currently on loan. You don't really have those elsewhere. You certainly don't have yep. them in the Bundesliga. And Hannes Wolf was the beneficiary. So too were Gladbach. <laughs> yeah, I like it. it. So I don't have much else to add on that game. I'm not sure if you do, Ryan, other than to say that maybe I'm just worried about RB Leipzig because there was no Tyler Adams, uh, not on the bench for this one, still recovering from injury. Hopefully we see him soon. I do like the idea of him coming back in that midfield looking uh, more solid and suddenly they they go on like a series of five straight wins or something like that and then we can fully give Tyler Adams the credit that he is due. But for now, instead, it's Leipzig dropping into third, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund on top, not surprisingly. Not surprisingly at all. One more thing to say about RB Leipzig. Kevin Campbell's hair, a delight. <laughs> is it still the blonde ponytail? Is that, is that what it does it for you? Blonde ponytail, situation. It, look, yeah. it just looks really cool. I wish I had it. <laughs> and on that note, Ryan, anything else you wish you had before we uh, bring this one to a close? Uh, a better grasp on soccer, but otherwise, no, I'm all set. Thank you. <laughs> all right, my friend. Then, Ryan, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, make sense of the games that happened this weekend. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. But, Ryan, thank you once again. Tay-Tay, it's always a pleasure, never a chore. 